Being a generation of kid of the late 80s and 90s, it was pre-access to a lot of technology and you had to do things yourself. You're in these 360 video environments, let's say in a VR headset, and you have no context, there's no narrative framed for you, right? And so when you put something like frame switch in there, it makes you a director. So I think that's what keeps me excited about it all the time because you still have a foot back in that world where we'll maintain an appreciation and it just takes over. Uh, and that I think there'll be a tipping point like that for AR and VR. Welcome to the Digital Doha Podcast, our brand new series focused on bringing listeners topical segments and informative conversations with local experts, exploring the cutting edge of emerging media happening in the dynamic international capital that is Doha, as well as the greater Middle East. I'm your co-host, Spencer Stryker, digital media professor at Northwestern University in Qatar. And I'm joined by my co-host, Natasha Das, media information and technology student at NUQ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Digital Doha podcast. We're thrilled to present our first guest of the season, Eric Espick, the Managing Director of the Digital Advancement and Media Applications Lab at Northwestern in Qatar. This lab is a digital innovation lab that pioneers in media research and interactive storytelling. Eric has over two decades of experience in the creative industry, where he started out as an artist and a musician and is now working in digital media. Most recently, Eric was awarded the prestigious MacArthur Foundation grant to complete a journalism empathy tool that is a VR product called FrameSwitch, launched in 2020. We hope you enjoy our conversation with one of Doha's leading innovators in the emerging space of AR and VR design. So FrameSwitch is, um, is a VR uh, app. It's, it's designed uh, around 360 video. So 360 video is amazing, you know, innovation in itself, but there's always been something a bit flat and one directional mm. to a degree about it. You can't interact with the content, even though you really want to, it doesn't do as much as you as a user want it to do, even though what it does is a lot. So the concept of frame switch is that you're looking at the 360 video through an interactive element, in this case, a virtual smartphone lens and you're recording. And what was really interesting about the prototypes, we've now developed the full product, but how as a user, as an audience, you engage with that content when you're actually interacting with it. So you're, you're looking at a 360 video, you're exploring it, but you're interacting it by choosing to record virtually parts of it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, it changes your role as the user. Uh, you engage with the content and it feels like you're interacting with it in a different way. Is it the interactive nature of the product which makes it a journalism empathy tool? Exactly. So, so it was actually Julia Lieb, the uh, freelance journalist, videographer, uh, 360 video documentarian that inspired the app. And then we later got to work with her. So seeing her content of uh, these warlords in Congo, exclusive content, no one was allowed to be there. It was amazing 360 video to look at. And then when we applied frame switch to it, she was 
blown away um, because it puts the user in her shoes. Um, so there's one one scene that we include in the in the frame switch, which is an interview with female soldier in Congo holding a, her AK-47. And there's, the difference is between you just watching her speak and then you watching her speak through a lens. And that simple distinction is what creates that empathy. And you you feel the difference between just passively listening to somebody to to actively listening to them while you're pointing a camera in their face uh -huh. while they're holding a gun. So it puts you there and it creates that empathy, which obviously VR is, you know, that's its main thing that it gets lauded for is that empathy creation. But this really had that impact, that difference between just act passively watching some video versus being in the shoes of that journalist, pointing a camera at them while they're potentially holding a gun or telling you incredibly personal details about their life. And it changes how you, you uh, perceive the, the situation and the content. That's amazing. So, because I'm trying to define what is the cutting edge of AR, VR, what, what places it occupy in terms of the future trends of media content? What does it offer that current media does not offer in terms of affordances and potential? Uh, so can you, can you dig deeper into that? I mean, what is the cutting edge for you, you know, and the next, shall we say the next phase for AR? Yeah. I've always been a little suspicious of cutting edge. And I think really when things are exciting is when they're intuitive and they're just fit and work. I think that the real future, and there is a huge future for AR, um, is what we're seeing, you know, what we're seeing in all kinds of mainstream everyday apps. And you take it from there. So when you open, now you open your camera in Google Maps, you just have AR layers there with stores and directions and arrows. And it's not something you're gonna think about. Um, these, layer, these layers will just exist. Um, so I think the future of uh, AR will, will be something we don't, you don't necessarily, it'll happen. It'll be like upon us and we won't necessarily notice because it, it is intuitive. It makes sense and it works. Uh, it solves a problem that maybe we didn't even know we, we had. And it's just kind of there happening as, as we see already. I think it's already present in, in, in ways, right? Um, but uh, maybe not in the ways that when you look at the cutting edge, they want to, you know, maybe force on you. I get what you're saying. So basically the yeah. the part of AR VR that's already there, that's right in front of us that we use all the time is integrated into current tech. That really is the, you know, where it's useful. Whereas, like you said, when you try to say the cutting edge or the next gen in a way you're trying to I'm almost pushing a little too hard into the point where it becomes cool, but not useful. Exactly. And I think VR is just such a great example of that because it's been cutting edge since the 90s yeah right. um so like 30 years later it's still like that next great thing um actually when we start using it without because we need to that'll be when it really breaks um and that'll happen so to answer that question a little further i think what'll happen is that vr ar will start to fit into something like uh prescription glasses or something like that that'll really tip it over uh, and it won't be a Google Glass, it won't be a helmet or a headset, it'll just be contacts or it'll be a pair of glasses that you put on anyway, and you have some useful information that you can see on the maybe one side of the lens. AR is going to become a contact lens. That's going to be the next gen. It's going to go from a phone to being a wearable. 
Exactly. I think it'll start with, I mean, you already see it with glasses for, I think, um, bicycle racers have them, um, the goggles they already wear, and then they have this very sort of simple text comes in on the one side of the lens. So it's not like an additional piece of equipment or gear you have to wear. Uh, you already have it and you can just get information that improves your life and it's easier to access and it doesn't have to be an extra sort of wearable. It's a wearable that you already have on. If you look into retinal projection, you'll see that it's it's already been a thing. So if you can create retinal projection without people having to know what that is and like put it put it into someone's glasses already, then um, I mean, it's kind of a creepy, cool sci-fi concept, but it's real and uh, you could make it wearable. And then that'll be a real game changer, I think, for AR and VR. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that that's intuitively useful. I mean, if you play video games, for example, you always have a HUD and yeah. you're always reading data that's relevant to you in the game. You're always yeah. looking for that data. It's a big part of the game experience of understanding what's happening. So to that extent, it's kind of an extension of, of that, right? It's useful data, just-in-time information. It, it, exactly. So a HUD, like there could easily be a generation that comes up where, you know, having a HUD that they don't, you don't have to go out of your way to wear. Other people don't know you have it. It could be a very giant leap. Um, there's a company called Magic Leap doing this kind of work, but uh, giant leap forward as far as forward is, you know, subjective, but uh, as far as accessing information at different speed, as you said, just in time and creating an advantage for somebody who over somebody else, and then at which point it would become a, you know, a mainstream piece of technology. Eric, I really liked the point you made earlier about how AR and VR is solving problems that we didn't even know we had. So going back to your work, what kind of problem do you think FrameSwitch is solving? Yeah, great question. So, so as I mentioned, it was solve, initially solving the problem of how to allow audience is to engage with 360 video, uh, but I think it solves a few other problems as well. And I think that's part of the fun thing about trying to innovate or design. Um, you try one thing and you get some some byproduct uh, out of it that is surprising and, and interesting. So one of the surprising problems we solved with FrameSwitch was, you know, you're, you're in these 360 video environments, let's say in a VR headset, and you have no context. There's no narrative framed for you, right? You're just there. You can look anywhere. Um, there's no direction as to how that story is. There's no right or wrong way to consume the content. And so when you put something like frame switch in there, it makes you a director. You're literally framing the narrative uh, as you go, as you're recording uh, what you choose. And then the flip side of that is super interesting because it is what did you choose to ignore? And what did you choose not to record? So that's really useful as a journalism tool to instruct people on how to document something fairly or accurately, or to get people to recognize, you know, the real limitations in video itself is that you are making choices all the time and uh, you need to acknowledge that. Um, so I guess that would be the sort of part of the problem we were solving. What are some of your thoughts about AR, VR and education? Where do you see that going? And how can it be applied for best practices in education in the near term? I think it's super exciting in education. So if we stick with sort of frame switch and this idea of putting people in, the, in, a, in sort of a dangerous situation, a journalist, 
you can put a, a journalism student into a conflict zone, have them record, and again, look at what they chose not to record or what they missed, uh, allow them to learn that split second timing, um, how to read a space, where to point your camera, um, you know, when something's going to happen because someone may fire off a gun or a rocket behind you or ahead of you, and you can only choose one thing to capture, right? So if, if you're photographing the cute kittens over on the left, you may miss, you know, confrontation or newsworthy item to the right. So that, that's an example of how VR can, can help, say, journalism education. Um, but there's, you know, any number of areas where you could apply that in medicine or mechanics or engineering, uh, things that result in danger or loss of life at the end, but get people, you know, with hands-on two-degree experience before they need to get out to the real world. Um, that would be, you know, one kind of extreme way to use VR. Yeah, well, absolutely. So basically it allows you to create powerful uh, simulation. And of course, we all know that simulations, I mean, that's how you learn anything is through practice, right? Yeah. In educational research, it's called like situated learning. Learning through watching people who are more experienced than you do, do the thing or doing it yourself and repeating it over and over. Right. Yeah. And, and what's nice as an educator using those tools is that you know the, the best possible outcome, right? Um, and you can, you can replay it or you could um, have whatever, you know, student redo um, the same situation over and over again until, you know, they kind of learn that path to the best possible outcome as an example. Yeah. I mean, this seems like the most obvious implication is for things like a flight simulator, right? Exactly. Or, God forbid, put training soldiers, right? I mean, if you, you know, but that's similar to what you were saying about um, training uh, journalists in dangerous places. It's kind of yeah. a similar concept to training soldiers in the sense that it's about like practicing reaction time under extreme situations that are hard to replicate normally. Precisely. Uh, someone brought up an interesting application the other day, which was, um, for instance, forensics and crime scenes. Um, so you record a crime scene and, you know, typically that crime scene is cordoned off, uh, like in the movies and, and it's held as intact as possible for a few days, but you record the crime scene. And if you, if you already know the outcome, you know, what evidence was there, what wasn't, you can show different people or different students and give them this virtual simulated environment, but you already know what they're missing and you know what the right and wrong possible answers are. And you can go back and, and then ex explain to somebody what they missed. That was a, an interesting application of it. There's, I think there's any number of fields um, and, and areas of education that, it, that were, there are some great ideas yet to, yet to come about how VR could really be a part of it. But uh, I think the obstacle of just getting VR into a truly mainstream, uh, a mainstream mindset of, of a tool to use, uh, it's still seen as a bit of a, a novelty and that'll, that'll jump, come, I think, as we were talking about the hardware changes, I think that'll, that'll need to happen before it becomes a truly uh, um, a go-to tool for educators. I was actually going to ask you about the end of the last point you made. What do you think about the distribution of the technology and when do you think it'll become the norm for schools and universities to use AR in teaching students? I think that it's, it's got its... Um, it's foot in the door now and it won't leave. Um, it's come and gone over the past decades. Um, it's, I don't think it's going anywhere now, but 
uh, now that we have file formats and, and YouTube VR is a, is a great example. Anyone can upload a 360 video and you can look at that in a headset and create you know, a pretty virtual environment. Uh, it'll take maybe a generational shift in educators, no offense to Spencer and myself, but um, you know, younger educators coming up and just using that, knowing it's a more powerful tool and people using it and understanding it's um, going to improve their education and it's going to speed up their education. It's going to make their education easier. Uh, those are all, I think, necessities for something to truly become mainstream. And it's really, you know, it constantly surprises me how many people will say they've never actually put a headset on or, or did it once. That is, I, I would say, really common, still very common response to VR. I think it's a bit of a myth. You know, the technology is the frame rates are constantly improving. And I think it's the obstacle of the hardware for it to truly become a mainstream device. But the, as we as we all know, hardware advances uh, when the demand is there just are really, really fast. So uh, screens and headsets and, and projection technology will, will move you know, rapidly when the demand increases and the demand will increase as um, the younger users get older. Absolutely. Yeah, what you're basically describing is uh, how technology goes from like sort of early adopters to somehow hitting some kind of mainstream, you know, basically everybody using it. And how does that play out? How does that happen? It happens like as we experience with like iPhones, right? Like people in North America didn't really text um, like in 2006 seven i remember going to europe and like everyone was texting smsing and t with t9 and it was like oh like i don't really do that but that was how people communicated uh in europe at that time not so much in in north america um it was still a bit of a novelty and you know a year two years later iphone comes out and it's game changing and uh no one's thinking about it right you just all of a sudden you're facetiming and you're texting like you know ridiculous amounts and it just takes over uh and that i think there'll be a tipping point like that for ar and vr yeah tipping point that's the word i was looking for um yeah i, I remember you know obviously the iphone was uh, announced on stage by uh steve jobs in 2007 the original iphone and that's really the the world's first kind of mobile browser multimedia browser that was actually usable there were browsers before that, like on BlackBerry, but they were not used. They were not a good experience, right? It was no. kind of really sucked and you had to really try really hard to get it to work. And uh, you could get it to visit a website, but it was a really unpleasant, tedious. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that was the genius of Steve Jobs was to make, to see that and to be able to make it this very user-friendly, user pleasing experience. And, um, as you say, it was like a thing where 2007, the iPhone was this novelty. And then I remember, because I was teaching at that time at the University of Wisconsin, I, I remember distinctly that it was like, the first person I saw who had an iPhone was in 2007. He was my web designer for a project. And he was like way out there, the most techie guy. So he had the iPhone and that was like the most advanced thing. And then by 2009, I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin. And then I remember there was like two kids in the class who had who had smartphones. And then by 2010, I remember there was like out of a class of about 25, there was like six kids who had smartphones. And then by mm -hmm. 2012, every student had a smartphone. 
And I saw that change in the course of four or five years where it went from this like very, you know, early adopters, very techie to mm -hmm. every single person had it. That's it. You know, you'd be yeah. weird to not have. Absolutely. I, my own personal kind of measuring stick for it was um, I would tell my friends to please stop texting while we were hanging out together. I found it very rude. Yeah. Um, and I'd be like, can you just put your phone, like put your phone in your pocket? Like, don't look at it while we're having dinner, you know, to now like, <laughs> never mind. Like people are watching live sports and eating dinner and chatting with friends and, and it's all happening at once. And that was really quick. Like that was, that was over a couple of, like you said, 2007 to 2009, the entire rules of social engagement um and interactions changed it really did our relationship with technology really changed and all that had to be renegotiated uh you know there were books that came people all understood there was a problem right away there was a book by sherry turkle that came out in 2010 that was called alone together and the book is all about how basically it was like a, you know kind of a ethnography slash study of how mobile phones had just changed how everyone was living their lives and that like she had these crazy statistics, like 60 to 70% of people are on their mobile phones at funerals mm. right? or things like that. Yeah. <laughs> the obvious thing is like when you, you three, four people go out to have dinner together or whatever, and then you look and you see every single one of them is on the phone. So it's like, are you guys actually together or are you all just having, you know, a customized individualized uh, media experience? That you yeah. choose to have in physical proximity to one another so that that all happened very very fast like you said so yeah i guess that's very interesting to think about ar vr and how how it will roll out how it will be adopted but since we have as a model seeing how the smartphone just really took things over it's not hard to guess that ar vr will be a niche thing and something that's like only for the early adopters and then all of a sudden within a very short period of time it could go mainstream exactly i think that'll be uh it is at that level of usefulness and like it'll it, once it happens it'll happen once we just stop trying to make it happen it'll happen and it'll be very fast and it'll be i think it'll be pretty radical it'll change a lot of a lot of things much like yeah smartphones did it's crazy for me to hear you talk about how pervasive <laughs> the smartphone became over the years yeah. is by the time i was allowed to have a phone everyone had a smartphone but I was wondering, how did you get into digital media and AR and VR at a time when most people don't really use it? So uh, I guess coming, you know, being a generation of kid of the late 80s and 90s, uh, it was pre-access to a lot of technology and you had to do things yourself or it was just you couldn't do it. So you couldn't make necessarily good videos. You couldn't record your own music. You couldn't edit your own film. It was too expensive to take photos. You had to be a professional or you had to have a lot of money in order to produce things for public consumption. And what happened was software came around, allowed you to GarageBand or Premiere or I'm trying to think what were the early web developing uh, software, Dreamweaver, uh, you know, things like that that allowed you to really just do it yourself and that DIY ethic. I've always had it uh, as a designer and as a musician. So I just picked up, gravitated these tools because they were cheaper and um, they were liberating and they allowed you to just do things 
yourself, whether it's graphic design or make movies, which I always love to do, make videos, uh, record things. And when I got into museum exhibition design, those tools were really new and they made things a lot easier. Uh, so I had a leg up, a real interest in, in using them already. I uh, wasn't afraid to to try and fail with them. I think that's a big thing. And there was this space in in design where museums have this these inter, they've always had interactive experiences, right? But they were mechanical, they were physical, and using computers, touch screens, or uh, a mouse and a screen, uh, you could replicate and make those experiences more powerful. Uh, so you could still have the interactive element, but you could access a database or a website and make things more magical. So I got in really early that way, doing things that, you know, people didn't, there were, there, that job didn't really exist in museum design. So I just kind of like followed the, you know, I simultaneously kind of tried to push that forward, but also then filled in the gap uh, because other people in museum sector didn't know how to do it. So I got in really early uh, through video editing, mostly uh, sound editing and uh, web design. The multimedia production suite. Exactly. I couldn't agree more uh, with what you're saying because um, that's also been my own path too, uh, is that when I went to film school at UT Austin, into the radio TV film program, and when I was there, that was 20 years ago. And uh, <laughs> at that time, I remember I was basically the last generation of, of students who actually had to go into the basement and use what was called the fishbowl at UT. Mm -hmm. I think they still have it, but I think I was the last generation of student of, of the last class that had to actually cut and splice film with a razor blade and with that specialized tape. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is how film school was taught for the entire 20th century, right? I mean, you know, to the extent that there was film school. It was film school, like, from the 1960s until, like, you know, until now. But during, until, like, around 2000, that was the way you taught people how to do film in it. was the, the 20th century analog splicing film with razor blades and then beginning in 2000 there, we had avid but avid was is very expensive and and it's sort of like it's not that accessible in a way in 1999 2000 final cut pro comes out from apple and final cut pro was the game changer that i think made editing really accessible and easy for people uh, so that's that transition i think that uh, i i actually kind of experienced myself in my own life and career is like going from something that was like arcane, difficult, hard to get your hands on the equipment, expensive to produce, to something that all of a sudden, wow, the technology is much more democratized and accessible. Exactly. And I think that type of like our generation that straddled those two worlds of the analog and the di digital, so I think that's what keeps me excited about it all the time because you still have a foot back in that world where, you know, this is amazing. Like we have, we'll, we'll maintain an appreciation because you existed at this time when it was just not accessible to you or it was a, you know, so laborious and time intensive that it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, uh, Natasha, when you're coming up and you'll straddle that AR VR world, right? Like where you'll see the difference between, you know, 
the pre-AR revolution, if it happens and, and, uh, and not, they'll, they'll be these generations that come up that get to straddle both sides of things. And I think those, that's what keeps you excited in your profession for a while. I, I think if I was born at your time, Natasha, and came up with a smartphone, I'd take it for granted a lot more. You know, for me, it'll still always hold a bit of magic uh, and wonder. <laughs> Natasha, your relationship to AR, VR may be similar to our relationship to mobile phone technology. When we were undergrads in college, I think maybe I'm a little older than Eric, but basically... No, I don't. <laughs> maybe maybe about the same but uh you know basically in the late 90s and in the very very early 2000s mobile technology was you know it was like it was it was it was exotic interesting but not practical uh you know and so maybe that's sort of uh for you Natasha that's going to be your experience there yeah you know it's actually funny because last night I was talking to my friend who is trying to install WhatsApp on his dad's phone and his dad's in his mid sixties. And he was saying, I can't believe my father can't keep up with the times. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I hope though, when I'm 60, I keep up with the times, but you know, given how much we've advanced so far, I'm not really sure what else is going to come next. <laughs> there are radical yeah. unknowns, right? I mean, yeah. it's the one thing you can know for sure about technology is that you can't predict it that well. You can make informed guesses and predictions based on patterns and stuff like that. But do you think that in in, in two thousand three or two thousand two would you would you have guessed that social media would be as prevalent as it was you know, ten years later in twenty twelve? Would anyone have guessed that? No. I mean, Friendster was like Friendster was like around in two thousand two. was like a very beginning of MySpace. MySpace. MySpace was huge. Uh, and I don't think it's like, it's a, such an interesting topic because you see the way that Facebook has now been adopted by um, seniors, yeah. um, people, people in their 60s, 70s, older, and they pick something up like that without having gone through the process and the evolution of social media. And it's a little bit like Pandora's box or like, you know, like there's a level of sophistication to younger users that older users don't have. And then you get a lot of fake news problems and disinformation. Um, that's an outcome of that, right? Like there was a stand-up comedian. I remember talking, doing a bit about um, his parents and them getting an email account you know, when it kind of became mainstream. And that was hugely problematic for that generation because they would see something in print and give it a lot of weight and validity. And they would get these, people would get these spam emails uh, about global conspiracies or whatnot, you know, and, and then be like, well, well, it has an American flag and an eagle on the bottom. It must, must be true, right? It must be somehow, you know, um, endorsed by the government because they didn't have any type of context with other digital information avenues like social media or, or whatnot. They weren't properly onboarded with this new tech and yeah. its risks, opportunities and risks. It's a very powerful thing when it when it hits mainstream. Um, you know, AR could have those same struggles. Do you think there's any solution to that? Are there ways we could train the older generations to be more adept with technology? Having having to, to teach somebody the you know, as you mentioned, Natasha, how do you how do you address that problem? 
is how do you teach somebody what they don't know? Um, it is really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm.